The reading is taken from Genesis chapter 32, verses 22 to 31. In the context of uh, Jacob, who had cheated his brother Esau, not only for the birthright, but then for that all-important final blessing from the dying father Isaac. Jacob fled in fear of his life, and now, 20 years later, he's coming back, still fearful, wondering how Esau is going to receive him. So he sent his herdsmen, he sent his family ahead. And then Jacob, that night, wrestles with God. That night, Jacob got up and took his two wives, his two maidservants, and his eleven sons, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. After he'd sent them across the stream, he sent over all his possessions. So Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him till daybreak. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. Then the man said, let me go, for it is at daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. The man asked him, what is your name? Jacob, he answered. Then the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with men and have overcome. Jacob said, please tell me your name. But he replied, why do you ask my name? Then he blessed him there. So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, It is because I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. The sun rose above him as he passed Peniel, and he was limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the Israelites do not eat the tendon attached to the socket of the hip, because the socket of Jacob's hip was touched near the tendon. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Jerry, very, very much. Good morning, everyone. Lovely to see you. I did watch the rugby yesterday and feel like I aged about 20 years um, through the game. Did anyone watch it? Yeah, lots of people. It was, a, it was an extraordinary match, wasn't it? Anyway, this morning, what we're going to do is we're actually ending our series on counterfeit gods. And uh, this has been um, an eight-week series, so I don't know how you found it. I've, I feel it's gone quite fast, actually. And uh, today is also our gift day. So um, I want to ask you this morning to consider giving financially to the church and you've had all of the information. Uh, there's like this Gift Sunday brochure. There's some great stories in there. There's all the, all the pledge forms, all the stuff. 
We're going to show a video that's been put together before the morning's out. So um, do please pray. Do think uh, how you'd like to respond uh, to this gift day. And really what I want to do is encourage you to pray, to seek God. Take forms away if you haven't got forms. There's stuff at the back. There's stuff on the back of chairs. If you bring them back in the next couple of weeks, that would be wonderful if you haven't done that already. The first thing I do want to do is thank our finance team, though. And uh, should we give the finance team a big round of applause? Because they do amazing work. And I also want to thank you all for your generosity and incredible um, financial generosity as we take the church forward together. So I hope you feel encouraged and um, honored this morning for all you've given and all you do. So what I want to do is really, on this gift day, on this last day in this series, look at the life of Jacob, really this episode in Jacob's life, and try and work out what it says to us about our counterfeit gods, and also try and see if we can link it to Gift Sunday in some way or other. Are you feeling confident or not? We'll see. We'll judge this at the end. So I've got three very quick observations this morning about this passage from Genesis 32. And the first is that Jacob is a bit like you and me. Jacob is a bit like you and me. Why? Well, he has many idols, and personality-wise, like us, he's a bit of a mixed bag. He's got some strengths, he's got some weaknesses, uh, he's just a bit of a mixed bag. And you know, I don't know what your family was like when you were growing up. I don't know how functional you would say your family was, your relationships with your parents. I don't know whether you've got brothers and sisters and, and whether you get on well with them or as you grew up, uh, you had great fun or, or not. I don't know whether your parents sort of favored one of your siblings uh, and that's been a bit difficult. I've spoken to many people who have had that experience. I ask you all those questions just to put the context of this story, this encounter, uh, in place. You see, Jacob's family of origin, I think it's fair to say, was pretty stormy. It was pretty dysfunctional, and it's probably fair to say his parents had their own issues. And uh, he and his brother also didn't see eye to eye. Do you know anyone who's sort of fallen out with a sibling? at all, in any family you know. It's quite common, isn't it? And maybe you're sitting here thinking, oh goodness, that's, that sounds like me and my brother or sister or whatever. Now, Jacob's parents were Isaac and Rebecca. He had an older twin brother, Esau, as Jerry's already said. And Jacob was actually born clutching his older brother's heel. Have a look at Genesis 25, 26, if you want to. I'm a twin. I don't have a twin um, brother, I do have a twin sister, Laura. I wasn't grabbing her heel, but uh, I'm intrigued by that birth. It's sort of a clue, really, to what happens in, jo- in uh, Jacob's life. Boys being boys, Esau and Jacob competed with, es- with, with their father for his attention, his love, and ultimately for the leadership and honor of their family. And the problem was, was that actually... Isaac consistently favored Esau. 
And actually, you don't have to be a psychologist to appreciate the damage that that causes. Favoritism within a family always sort of wreaks havoc. And so this was actually very, very wounding for Jacob. And Keller, Tim Keller, in his book, says this is the clue, this is the way in to understand, actually, Jacob's idolatry. His life, you see, is riddled with idolatry. He idolizes money. When the day finally came for Isaac to give Esau as the eldest son the ritual family blessing, and you'll know that the older son got the lion's share of the family estate. Actually, Jacob, egged on by his, sorry, yeah, Jacob, egged on by his mum, actually pulls a trick and ends up getting Isaac to bless him. He uses takes advantage of his older brother's hunger. If you know the story, he disguises himself. And if you want to read that, you can read Genesis 27. Now, I don't know what you would do if you were the older brother and your younger brother had done that. I don't know whether you'd throw a shoe at his head or mess up his room. Actually, Esau vows to kill Jacob. And so this is quite full on. Esau vows to kill Jacob. And actually, his mum says to him, you know, Jacob, you're going to have to get out of here, basically. Your life is in danger. You've done this, and I suggest you go to your uncle, Laban. And uh, so he flees, and uh, you see that conversation in Genesis 27, 41 to 46. So Jacob kind of idolizes money. Jacob also idolizes sex and relationships. And we've looked at the story a bit over the series of Jacob, haven't we? He gets to his uncle's land, and uh, he comes across some shepherds and actually sees this rather good-looking shepherdess uh, who is Laban's youngest daughter, Rachel. And uh, he sort of falls for her. And he says to Laban, look, I really want to marry Rachel. And he enters into a deal with his uncle whereby he'll work for seven years to get Rachel's hand in marriage. So he thinks, okay, I'll do that. I'll work seven years. I love this girl, she's amazing. He gets married, he wakes up in the morning and to his horror, the deceiver has been deceived himself. It's actually not Rachel, he wakes up in bed with. On the first morning of his marriage, it's actually Leah. Laban has tricked him. But such is Jacob's love for Rachel that he agrees to work for another seven years in order to get her, Genesis 29, And uh, actually, this leads to some interesting family dynamics, as you can imagine, in his own family. And uh, Jacob's parents are fairly dysfunctional. He himself and his family becomes fairly dysfunctional, if you read Genesis 30. So he idolizes money. He idolizes sex and relationships. He idolizes also professional success. And uh, actually, he works really hard. Uh, He treads the line of integrity, uh, different ways of interpreting what happens with the uh, flocks, Laban's flocks. But he ends up amassing great wealth and livestock. Now, many trace his idolatry, as I've said, to his early life. And uh, I remember speaking to a management consultant. He was senior in a a very well-known management global consultancy. And uh, I remember having a chat with him. I said, look, what do you look for in, 
in your recruits. And he said, we want the youngest and, and brightest from the best universities. I said, that makes sense. Anything else? He said, we want them to be really insecure. And I said, that's a bit strange. I said, why do you want them to be really insecure? He said, when they're really, really insecure, they'll give us everything. They'll be driven, they'll be ambitious, they'll be workaholic, they'll prioritize us over their marriages, their children, their friends, their whole life. They'll give us everything. I said, that's a bit sinister. He said, not really, we pay them well. It's interesting, isn't it? But there's something of this wounding, this dynamic in the life of Jacob. And actually, I also read a study on what's the key to the global leaders in history? What do they have in common? What traits do they have? In fact, these global men and women, these amazing leaders, uh, actually don't have much in common. But what they do have is dysfunctional families of origin. And the men especially have very damaged relationships with their fathers, is what they've concluded. And they give Winston Churchill as the perfect example of that. So there's some sort of dysfunction here and brokenness and damage in the life of Jacob that leads to or is linked in some way to his idolatry. And actually, having been with Laban for many years, things turn sour because his sons, Laban's sons, think he's ripping him off. Read Genesis 31. And so he has to flee. He has to flee. So that's an overview of his life story, if you like. But I'd encourage you, if you haven't already, to think about your idols. They're Jacob's idols. You may or may not agree with that analysis. But what are your idols? And I don't know how you found it in your life groups. In my life group, we've actually been reading each chapter. And then one person has been uh, identifying what their own idols are. And it's been interesting, you know, or people have often, uh, some of the guys have been saying, actually, this chapter's not mine, but that chapter three's mine. Or actually, chapter seven's the one that really gets me. And I encourage you to think about your idols, those things that you pursue. Um, and as we've seen over the weeks in this series, it's putting uh, effort and energy into things that only God can provide and looking for stuff that only God can ultimately provide. What are your idols? What are my idols? So I hope you're still with me, but first of all, I'm suggesting that Jacob is a bit like you and me. He actually has lots of idols, and uh, also he's a mixed bag. He has strengths, he has weaknesses, he has a story, a history, a family of origin, which has joys, challenges, issues, all sorts of stuff going on. Second, I suggested this morning, the only thing that will free us from our idols is a deep encounter with God. Now, I don't know if you were Jacob, having heard a quick overview of his story, where you'd flee to. Jacob actually decides to head home back to his father's land, the land of Canaan. And you've got to understand what a massive deal this would be to actually understand the extent of this story. For him, it's a terrifying prospect. Remember, he has a brother who wants to kill him. His mother has said to him, actually, if you look at Genesis 27, 42 to 45, if he changes his mind, I'll let you know so you can come back. But he's heard nothing. And uh, this is really the climax of his life. This is one of those key moments in his life. And I don't know whether you've known anyone who's fallen out with parents or siblings um, and they get to the point where they think, I'm going to go for reconciliation. Have you, ever, have you ever known someone like that? 
I've had quite a few people I've spoken to who've fallen out with family for years and then 20 years later they say, actually, you know, my parents are about to die. I'm going to try and reconcile with them. I've got a friend at the moment, her father was quite abusive. She hasn't spoken to him for 20, 25 years. He's now making contact with her. She's wondering whether to hook back in with him and start a relationship with him. And it's quite a nerve-wracking thing. It's quite a terrifying thing. It's unknown. Don't know what's going to happen. Don't know how it's going to go. It's riddled with doubt and uncertainty. This is the sort of place Jacob finds himself in. I don't know tactically what you'd do. Jacob decides to send messengers ahead to his brother Esau and uh, sort of send a lot of livestock as well. You know, just try and appease him a little bit. Give him a heads up, soften his return. Genesis 32, 1 to 6. Subsequently, he actually hears that Esau is coming towards him to meet him along with 400 men. I don't know what you would think, but Jacob actually thinks, oh my goodness, this is going south. This is getting dangerous. This has all gone wrong. What on earth is going to happen? And uh, he does what you and I would do. Uh, He actually uh, divides people into two groups so that actually if one of them gets attacked, he doesn't lose anything, 32, 6 to 7. He prays that God would save him, 32, 9 to 12. He prepares the gifts of hundreds of goats, ewes, rams, camels, donkeys, bulls, uh, 13 to 21, in the hope that these things will pacify Esau before he meets him. And uh, actually, when we catch up with him in Genesis 32, he's doing the most important thing, which is he's trying to protect his immediate family. And so he's got his wives, he's got some of their maidservants, he's got his 11 sons, and he puts them and a few possessions in as much safety as he can on the other side of a river. And uh, he then goes to the other side and he's on his own. So that was a long way of catching up to our reading. But what happens next is extraordinary and mysterious because in verse 24... Jacob is left alone and wrestles with a man uh, until daybreak. It's just this extraordinary thing. So Jacob was left alone and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. He was this mysterious figure. Keller unpacks this. In a word, it's God. He says the narrator deliberately obscures his identity to the reader but leaves a few clues. First, it's clear from the Hebrew word that the strangest touch on Jacob's hip, hip is the lightest touch. His hips dislocated. So he's really, really strong, this stranger. It's God. Second, his mysterious wrestler insists that he must leave as the sun comes up. That's verse 26. And actually, Jacob knew it was common in that day that you couldn't look at God's face and live. Have a look at Exodus 33:20. So uh, actually, it's God he's wrestling with. We could spend time here, but just notice a few things. In his desperation, Jacob is hungry for God and his blessing. Verse 26b. I'm not going to let you go until you bless me. This is the crazy bit. I don't know what you would have done if you'd wrestled with someone all night and discovered it was God. I think lots of people would actually sort of let go and flee, but Jacob just wrestles and says, I'm not going to let you go. This wrestling actually utterly transforms Jacob, 27 and 28. The man asked him, what's your name? Jacob, 
he answered. Then the man said to him, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you struggled with God and with humans and have overcome. And actually, this wrestling with God transforms him. It absolutely transforms Jacob. And uh, that's clear from his change of name. As I've said, uh, Jacob actually means the one who follows another's heel or supplanter in the Hebrew. Israel, his new name, actually means it's a mixture in the Hebrew of wrestle and God. But it actually conveys um, uh, an essence of clinging firmly to God. And the name spoke of his being bound with a bond of life and love to God. So it's a whole different name and and identity he's given. In the Hebrew, uh, names weren't uh, labels. They, they spoke of your whole identity, your whole person. So wrestling with God has utterly changed uh, Jacob. He's become Israel. And he eventually gets the blessing if you look at verses 29 and 30. So I want to ask this morning, are you wrestling with God? Have you got up close and personal with God? Are you really, really wrestling? Because actually that's what Jacob does. And uh, Keller's take on this actually is that this is what changes him and frees him from his idols, the wrestling with God. Keller's whole thesis you would have been following through the last few weeks is that you can't just let go of idols. You have to replace them. And Jacob does this through his wrestling with God. And have you ever wrestled with anyone? Have you ever wrestled with anyone? It's actually really intimate. You get really close. You feel each other's body. You get people in headlocks. You, you sweat. You smell one another. Are you doing that with God? That's what ultimately will free us from idols. So secondly, on this whistle-stop tour, I'm just saying that actually, if we want to be free of our idols, we do so by experiencing a deep encounter with God. And we wrestle and this wrestling thing is really important. You see it in the Bible. The prophets wrestle with God. The psalmists wrestle with God. Read the Psalms. They're wrestling with God. You see this in the uh, pages of the New Testament. Just real deep engagement with God. You actually see this with Jesus and his father in the Garden of Gethsemane. We'll be, we'll be thinking about uh, in the next couple of weeks. So... Final point, point three, the deeper we encounter God, the more we limp, the more generous we become. What on earth has wrestling got to do with gift day? I want to say in a word everything. Wrestling has everything to do with gift day. Why is that? When Jacob wrestles with God in light of his story, in light of the climax of his life, actually what he experiences is God's love grace, kindness, and generosity. He changes his name. He gets the blessing he spent his whole life looking for in other things. Money, Rachel, 
success. And he experiences the love and grace and kindness of God. That's what you experience when you wrestle with God, always. God, you see, lets Jacob get up close and personal. And you've got to remember, Jacob isn't a hero. He's not especially impressive. He's not a moral paragon. He continually acts in foolish and devious and even vicious ways. In many respects, he doesn't deserve any blessing. Why does God let Jacob come close? Because of his love, generosity, grace, and kindness. And actually, we're a bit like Jacob, aren't we? We don't deserve God's blessing. We're not wildly impressive. I'll speak for myself. I won't speak about you. I'm not especially impressive. I'm not uh, a moral paragon of virtue. I don't have it all together. I'm not Mr. Holy. I'm not Mr. Perfect Life before God. I'm not Mr. Prayer 100 Life. I'm not Mr. Perfect Christian. You know, my life is a mess. I've got serious brokenness. I do really terrible things. Uh, I do really unacceptable things on occasions, as well as all the good stuff but God's welcomed me. And he's welcomed me because he's full of love, grace, kindness, and generosity. And that's the gospel, isn't it? And when we see God's generosity, when we experience his intimacy with a bit of wrestling, and you whiff, you, you, you whiff wrestling on people, don't you? You sense people who wrestle. Actually, that leads to generosity because actually you've experienced God's grace. Generosity in worship, generosity in spirit to others, generosity with our time uh, with God, generosity in uh, how we lay down our lives before other people, generosity in what we say about other people, and of course, generosity with our money. So I want to close by just encouraging you to think about Jacob's story because it's actually your story and it's actually my story. We're slightly different because we've actually come to God through Jesus Christ and his death on the cross. But Jesus has let us come up close and personal and has been phenomenally generous to us. So on this gift day, please don't give out of duty. Please don't get out of guilt. Please don't give a penny if you feel reticent or reluctant. Please don't give out of legalism. Give because actually you've encountered the one true living God who has died on the cross in your place and looks at you, even you, even me, with love, 
generosity, kindness, and grace. And as one on the cross, actually an extraordinary hope and future for us all. That's why you give. That's why wrestling is important. That's why Jacob, actually, when push comes to shove, has much to teach us.